All righty. It's uh, two minutes after 1230 and it's the 6th of May. And welcome to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. This is a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. We're broadcasting live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern Time and 11.30 Central Time every Wednesday from the first week of May uh, through the first week of September. This is the first time we've run anything like this. Um, so uh, it's pretty exciting for all of us involved and we hope you find it exciting as well. But who are we? Uh, that's a question you may be asking. Well, it's we're a group of people at universities who work in extension and extension working with vegetable growers in particular. So some of us are based in the counties, working with growers of a certain county or a, a range of counties. Some of us are actually campus specialists focused on very specific things like plant pathology or entomology um, and other aspects that are related to uh, getting a vegetable crop successfully. And I'm gonna turn this over to my co-host today, Natalie Hoytel. All right, thanks, Ben. Um, so that was Ben Phillips, and I'm Natalie Hoytel, and we are your co-hosts for today. The hosts may shift um, from episode to episode, um, but Ben works at Michigan State University Extension, and I work at Minnesota Extension. Um, both of us work with vegetable growers. And then we have Mike Rinke here behind the scenes, also from Michigan State, who's kind of handling all of the questions um, and whatnot. And so He's there to help out if you're having any technical issues. Um, you can write to him in the chat. Um, so today we are talking about weathering the COVID-19 content storm. There's so much information, it's kind of hard to wade through it and figure out how to apply some of this stuff to your farms. So we're gonna be talking about um, especially worker safety and kind of communicating some of these things to customers. So our guests for today are Amanda Byler, a family nurse practitioner who works with migrant uh, worker communities at the Great Lakes Bay Health Centers, and Annalisa Holtberg, also a University of Minnesota Extension educator who works with on-farm food safety. Um, and so with that, um, Annalisa and Amanda, can you just give a quick introduction of yourselves before we jump into the questions? I'll go first. Good morning, everybody. Annalisa Holtberg, uh, like Natalie said, I'm an extension educator at the University of Minnesota. I work statewide with fruit and vegetable growers on on-farm food safety, good agricultural practices, FISMA produce safety rule, and over the last month, 90% of my job is COVID-related, as um, probably is true for many of us, is what we're thinking about. So happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. I'm Amanda Bylers, uh, family nurse practitioner. I work um, here in Michigan, and during the summer, I manage our. I'm the uh, migrant medical director for our mobile um, healthcare program, and we'll uh, travel around to different migrant camps or farm working communities and uh, do consultation with with farm workers and with with uh, migrant and seasonal workers. And one of the things that we're actively working on now is what this season is going to look like with the uh, COVID nineteen pandemic. So I'm here to offer a little bit about what I know and kind of summaries from the, from the CDC, et cetera. Um, that's awesome. I'm so happy that both of you could be here um, and take the time out of your day for this. Uh, I just wanted to make a quick reminder to our live attendees that if you are joining us online, either on your phone or on a computer, 
but you can actually like see our floating heads around uh, through the Zoom app. Uh, you can participate in this in this conference by submitting questions in this thing called the Q and A box, which is down at the bottom. And we we've enabled this cool function where you can upvote questions that people put in. So you don't have to write the same question or a similar one. If you think someone else kind of hit it, you just upvote it. Uh, and then we can see the most popular questions um, and we'll be able to tackle as many of those as we can in the back half of the program after we uh, talk to our guests up front here. And I'll talk a little bit more about uh, hand raising near the end where we where we could have some live like spoken word Q&A and stuff like that too, but I'll save that until the end. You can also use the chat box for commentary uh, if you'd like, but we're trying to keep questions in the Q&A. It's easier to keep track of everything. So um, I'd like to get started with some questions for you guys. So, um, Amanda, I want to start with you. What do you think, um, and, and you can reference the CDC uh, as well, but um, as you both mentioned before we started, you're, you're not virologists and you're not epidemiologists, and those are the true experts in this world, and I don't think we could afford any of them at this point in time. Uh, <laughs> so, thank you. But what, what do you think are the most important preventative actions that a uh, grower could take against this particular virus to support the health of their workforce, mi migrant or otherwise. So I like that you mentioned preventative because I do think that is that's that's definitely the the way to start. Um, there are a lot of there are uh, oh, excuse me here let me see there's a lot of information that's available and, and the majority of it is actually pretty simple um, hand washing frequent cleaning, kind of stuff that we learned in kindergarten, right? If you're sick, don't be coughing and sneezing on other people. Um, but I, one of the things that I think is most important is making the right actions easy and kind of the accepted normal thing to do. So if, if hand washing stations are easily available or sanitizers easy, easily available and you make a habit of it, and you see other people doing that, it becomes kind of the accepted, the accepted norm and the accepted thing to do. Uh, hand washing is definitely one of the top ways of, of preventing transmission, preferably with soap and water. Hand sanitizer is a good second choice if that's, if that's what's available. Um, cleaning high touch surfaces. And one of the reasons for this, so the virus is transmitted through uh, droplets and those droplets um, come when when someone coughs sneezes when when it comes out of the nose or the or the mouth and so this particular virus seems to like living in the upper respiratory tract which makes it easier for it to be expelled and then can drop down onto surfaces and so that's the reason for cleaning the high touch surfaces and that would be uh, doorknobs faucet handles things like that so making sure that you've got plenty of cleaning supplies and it might even be a good idea to have a schedule. So if, especially in, in, a, in a facility where there are multiple people, maybe there's a list where this gets cleaned every day, this gets cleaned twice a day, this is, month, this is weekly cleaning that would get done. Um, another thing then with preventive measures is distancing people. And I think that we hear a lot about that. Depending on the number of employees uh, that can be a little bit more of a challenge, especially because with um, close living quarters, 
there's those are often built to eliminate to conserve space as much as possible and so i think thinking through what what is going to be a practical way of distancing people six feet if possible uh, more if more if possible but a minimum of six feet and the reason for the six feet is that's within that distance uh, droplets are larger droplets are very easily uh, expelled and so a cough or sneeze, if you think about the force of a cough or sneeze, those droplets can actually travel further than six feet, but it's within those six feet that you're going to have the majority of the, of the larger droplets that can carry the virus. So that's the reason for the six, kind of the six feet guideline. So maybe thinking through transportation, um, how many people can you put in a vehicle and safely space them apart? If you're in a housing situation, is there a way of putting people in different rooms or possibly spacing out the um, beds? We've talked about uh, the CDC guidelines for living in congregate um, living spaces would be sleeping head to toe so that your faces aren't kind of in the same area. And then possibly considering something like cohorting, which would include having groups of people maybe who live in the same house would be the only ones that are going to town in the same vehicle at the same time or, or something like that, a way of kind of when there are a lot of people who are in close spaces, kind of maintaining um, contact even only within those people so that, that um, if somebody would have the virus, it wouldn't spread quite as quickly. The CDC does recommend masks. And the reason for that is to contain the droplets. So it's, it's not as a way of preventing you from getting the disease, but rather from preventing the spread of it. And then I think education is also pretty important. I know here in Michigan, we work with a large number of uh, migrant patients who don't speak English as their primary language. And I think getting them uh, good education in a language that they're comfortable with is, is helpful. And then also being prepared kind of for worst case scenario. And this wouldn't be a preventive action, but assuming that COVID-19 comes, what would, be, what would be a good plan to have in place? I've actually got a question for you a little bit later about <clears throat> testing and testing positive and routes to take on that. So I'm gonna hold, sure. well, I wanted to stop you from getting too far on that, yeah, but I did have absolutely. one follow-up about um, um, cleaning and making it easy. In your experience visiting migrant camps, uh, is that is the home cleaning aspect of that living situation uh, assumed by, by the employees themselves or, or is there kind of a range of uh, arra arrangements for that kind of thing? The majority, from what I've seen, that would be dependent, to, that would be dependent on the employees, okay. which is one reason that that education piece I think is important. Got you. Okay. So another thing, oh, oh, go ahead. No, I just, if I could, another um, interesting piece to think about, and this has been brought up occasionally, is thinking through mental and social health issues. Um, and this isn't just for, this is for everybody. There is this, this concept of isolation is not uh, native to humans. It's not a natural thing. And so I think it's also important to address the, the idea of mental and social health for all of us, because it's really hard to maintain these things, these, these measures. Um, they're, they're not sustainable if, if we don't have some kind of human interaction. 
Yeah, yeah. that's super important. Um, so I wanted to follow up um, with Annalisa kind of addressing, so all the things that Amanda said um, are really great and important. And I think in every operation, you're going to kind of have to think through like what that looks like for you since all farms are different. And so Annalisa, um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this template um, and then just kind of some general advice about like kind of risk assessment on a farm by farm basis. Right. Yeah. So Natalie and I have been working um, along with the team at UW-Wisconsin and others within Minnesota to develop a response plan template sort of akin to those of us that have been working with farm food safety for many years, um, sort of akin to a food safety plan, but for a COVID response. And the idea is to really help farmers prioritize their actions based on the activities that might pose the greatest risk and the actions that are most doable on their farm. So exactly the things that um, Amanda just talked through. So how many hand washing stands do you have on your farm? Are they accessible? Are they e easily um, accessed when you're in the field, for example, or does someone have to walk 10 minutes to get to that hand washing stand? Because if you have a hand washing stand, or let's say your only hand washing facility is the restroom at the house, but your field is a 20 minute drive, is someone really going to go back? Probably not. So the idea is that we've created it as a series of prompts as opposed to a series of directives. So the prompts are there because this is going to be a thought process that's based on the risks that are present. There are some things that are constant across all farms. You need to have some sort of hand washing. You need to have some sort of cleaning and sanitizing protocols for those high touch surfaces and your food contact surfaces definitely need some employee training. So we've have, we have prompts as questions and then we have potential answers. So the idea is that there are multiple potential solutions or answers or strategies which in, within each question and you take away the ones that don't apply to you or use them if it seems like a good idea. So we sort of brainstormed with our farmers and those that we work with and came up with some potential strategies that seem like they might work on farm. So farmers have a starting point. So it's a template meant to be changed and um, really based on, on the risks. And the idea is that um, the, the reason that we kind of came to this as opposed to just a series of fact sheets with real clear directives is that sometimes people want it to be real simple. Just tell me how much sanitizer to use. Okay, that's one part of it, but there, it, it is a little bit more nuanced than that, um, and you really do need to think through kind of how, you're, how many people are on your farm, how often are they touching those things. You probably don't have to t uh, sanitize your windowsill every day, for example, but you do need to sanitize the higher touch surfaces. So that's how we framed it. So I, th I think I've seen this document um, shared both through Wisconsin and Minnesota, and on both of them, there's um, a label fair share CSA coalition. Is that kind of the, the origin of this document? No? Nope. That is the organization that Claire Strader in Wisconsin works with. Okay. But in any case, it's, it's a shareable document. Um, how, how do you, um, how, how are you asking growers to utilize it or change it to the, 
to their needs? Can they copy it and then? Absolutely. Um, yep. It's a Google Doc. So the other reason that we made it a Google Doc is because we know this information is coming out and changing regularly. CDC guidance, initial you know, postings we did maybe didn't mention masks. Now they mention masks, for example. So things change. Um, so it's a Google Doc, so we will be updating it frequently, but also um, the growers then can have a living document. So you, just like any other Google Doc, you can download it, you can save it, and then put it into Word, and, and it's your document. That's great. And it, it also, I, I will just quickly add, it has a accompanying um, FAQ section. So that's kind of the more directives. How, what are the approved sanitizers and disinfectants to use? What about masks and gloves? Kind of the ones that we have some more clear answers to, we've broken out into the FAQ doc. That's excellent. Um, we can share that uh, when we when we release the recording of this, um, every time I've seen it, I've seen a whole bunch of anonymous animals at the top. So it seems like it's getting well used. There's a lot of people in it anytime I go into it. So congrats on that. It sounds like it's working well. You're hitting people where they want to see it is what it seems like. Um, great. Um, Amanda, I want to go back to you. Um, just to ask you, what, what can you tell me about the testing for this disease? We had talked uh, last week a little bit about this and you're you're part of the crew who's administering some of these tests so what are they like how have they changed how can you get one you may only be able to speak about Michigan I guess but but perhaps uh, that's good enough so I can speak to Michigan and I can speak to um, Wednesday May 6th <laughs> because that that is definitely an evolving uh, thing the the current recommendations are that testing is still prioritized, but they have definitely loosened those uh, guidelines, those standards up quite a bit. And I anticipate that that'll continue to happen. But the, there, are two, there are two types of testing. One is the PCR RNA, which looks for the actual virus. And then there's antibody testing, which shows kind of an exposure if you've had a previous exposure to the, um, to the disease. So there are a couple of pros and cons with each of those. And I'll just mention, touch on those. The pros for the PCR testing is that it's currently the more reliable test um, as far as getting sensitivity and specificity when we get them back from the labs. It's more reliable, uh, po reliably positive, a true positive or a true negative. And then the other thing is it shows if you are, you may be actively contagious. The cons for that PCR testing is it is rather uncomfortable. And I can speak to that because I've had it done. It's not, it's not really painful, but a nasopharyngeal swab, it's not, it's not a, it's not something that I would just sign up to do every day. And um, it, it doesn't, it, it's kind of a snapshot in time. So I have a negative test result today, but that could change next week. The pros for the antibody test is that it, it, they, it can indicate if you've had a previous infection, which we don't know for sure would prevent reinfection, but it's likely that it will provide some amount of protection. And it involves a, a finger poke or a, or a blood sample, which is, um, we're a little bit more accustomed to. The cons with that, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't show if you're actively shedding the virus. And at this time, they're, they're still not super reliable. So there's a significant number of false positives and false negatives. So the current CDC guidelines are for nasopharyngeal swabbing, where the, the swab goes through the nose and then and gets um, secretions from the, from the back of the nose, the top of the throat, and tests those for virus. And 
essential workers, people who leave the home to work, uh, are, it is a recommendation that they be screened, whether they're symptomatic or not. And farm workers are definitely essential. So they're in, at this point, that, that it, there is a recommendation for, for testing if you're interested. And a lot of the sites you don't need an order for any longer. You can just say that you're an essential worker and that activates a standing order. All right. Um, now, if, if you're tested and it comes back positive, well, actually, this is a two-part question. How long does it take to learn the results? And then if it comes back positive and you're a farm worker or the employee of a farm worker who tests positive, what, what kind of actions are being recommended right now? So the results really depend on the where you get the test done. There have been a number of pharmacies that are starting to do testing. I believe Rite Aid is, is one of the, the more common ones. And I think they have a rapid test, which comes back within a shorter period of time. I believe it's a half hour. I could be mistaken about that. Um, the testing that we're doing goes through Quest Diagnostics. And so that gets sent out to a laboratory and takes anywhere between two and seven days to get back. So it really depends on where you, where you go to have the testing done. If the test comes back positive, the, the biggest thing, the, the number one thing is making sure that emergency care isn't needed. And so knowing the symptoms for what, what constitutes a respiratory emergency, if there's difficulty breathing, um, bluish lips, fever is over 100, 102 degrees, and Tylenol and ibuprofen isn't bringing it down, those are things that should send someone to the emergency room. Otherwise, the recommendation is staying home and essentially quarantining or isolating yourself to uh, prevent spread as much as possible. And one of the ways that one of the ways that this can be done is by planning beforehand, um, so that when you if if you would find yourself in that situation, you don't have to run to the store to pick up Kleenex and Tylenol and ibuprofen. So maybe having some of those things available either as the farm worker or potentially for um, employees. If there are prescriptions, making sure that you have your prescriptions uh, stocked up so that you don't need to be calling and making an emergency um, trip into the pharmacy. And then how, how can you isolate someone? And that, again, is a little bit of a difficult situation when there's congregate living, but potentially thinking about putting up barriers around um, bedding um, if at all possible, trying to keep anyone who would be infected in a separate room, preferably with separate bathroom facilities. And if there's no way of making that happen, then providing those cleaning supplies for the person to wipe down um, any surfaces that they have touched after they've been used. Definitely anyone who is positive should be wearing a mask. And then the, the kind of the last thing with that is knowing when you can come out of isolation. And there are, there are two answers for that from the CDC. One is based on testing, and then the other one is based on symptoms. And so the, the most common way is based on symptoms because that tends to be easiest. And that would be if you've gone three days without fever and cough and shortness of breath is improving, 
and there's been a minimum of seven days since symptom onset, which is averaging. So that, that's where there's an average of about 10 days. Um, typically, people are definitely feeling better and they're able to kind of come out of the quarantine. So that's the non-testing-based strategy from the CDC. The testing-based strategy is where you get another test and you have to have two negative tests more than 24 hours apart. And once you have those two negative tests, then you're not considered contagious any longer and can come out of isolation. Okay, fantastic, thanks. So we, our goal is to kind of keep these at 30 minutes so that people can do this on their lunch break um, and then have more time for Q and A. Um, so maybe I'll just ask one final question um, that hopefully we can answer pretty quickly. This was mostly um, addressed to Annalisa, but Amanda, feel free to jump in as well. Um, so this was a lot of like on-farm questions, but another key piece of this is communicating to customers what you're doing. Um, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about maybe best practices or concerns that customers have and how farms can respond. Right. Um, well, first of all, I would encourage farms, however they feel comfortable, to communicate to their customers that this is not a foodborne pathogen. We don't have any evidence that there that the virus itself has been transferred via food or food packaging. You can't eat it on your broccoli. Likely, you can't eat it on your broccoli and become ill with it. It's a respiratory illness, it, and it enters through um, our eyes and our nose and our mouth, and the infection is in our respiratory tracts. So that would be important to say because that might not be um, – evident. I would also say I would talk about the practices that you're doing on farm and those might be um, practices to keep your workers safe because this really in many ways is a worker safety issue. So talk about the cleaning and sanitizing you do and the hand washing that you have on farm even if customers themselves aren't coming on I think that they would like to hear that that you care about your workers and also then it will reduce the potential that it could even be on the produce or the food packaging even though that is already a very small possibility. I would also say if they are, if you're interacting with a customer, be real clear about how that, how your policies are for CSA drop-off and pickup, for example. If you're on a porch, tell them exactly what they can and can't do when they come to do that pickup. Where, if you have hand sanitizer available, where that is. If you want them to wear gloves, tell them that. So be real explicit about that communication. I think they will appreciate um, knowing that. But those are kind of the main things that jump to my mind. I was wondering, have you seen anything in, in, I'm not sure what your travel situation is in Minnesota, in Michigan, I can't travel for work yet, uh, but I did get to visit a farm market because I was shopping and I was really impressed yeah. with how well this particular one had adapted. Mm -hmm. um, floor markings, amazing signage, plexiglass behind the counter and the register person. And as I was checking out, they were just taking a call for a curbside pickup. So I got to watch the whole thing and how they were handling it. Uh, I was amazed. Yeah, uh, I agree. Were, 
I think our farmers markets are so visible from the outside. There's no walls. So they're so visible to the public that they have to have a higher standard than grocery stores, to be honest. I, I think that's the way it's shaking out that I've seen because grocery stores are hit or miss in terms of social distancing, certainly not hand washing available, maybe sanitizer if you're lucky, right? Maybe the cart wipes. But at a farmer's markets, I feel that they've um, really done a nice job of having that social distancing and they're figuring that out right now or the online pre-sales, um, but the hand, hopefully hand washing and not just the, the sanitizer as well for, for vendors and buyers as, as well. All right, so we are at noon um, and we're gonna have some time for Q&A here. So if you're still on, we're, we can stay on as long as we need to. Um, but thank you so much, Amanda and Annalisa. Um, this has been really helpful. Ben, do you want to talk a little bit about what's coming up next week? Yes, yeah, on tap for next week is seed bed preparation and keeping transplants healthy. Uh, we are, we're still getting our guests all arranged for that. There's probably going to be two or three of them, um, but it's going to be fun and um, it's going to, it's going to be, it's hopefully going to feel normal to listen to something like that. We'll have a COVID moment for sure. We got to recognize what's going on, but it's going to feel about normal, about a vegetable-related thing. So um, keep in tune for that. You can go to glveg.net slash listen. Um, say, so that's how you can get onto the webinar. Same time, 1230 Eastern, 1130 Central. If you've got any questions that you want, like preloaded, you can email greatlakesvegwg at gmail.com. And that will come to me and then I can quarterback that out to different people um, and have it ready to answer on here. And then um, my final announcement is that this is, this is supported by a group called the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. Um, so we thank them for their help. Okay. okay we have some questions here. Um, and before I read them, just, it sounds, it looks like a lot of you have figured out the questions. You can write a question in the chat. You can upvote. You can also, um, or sorry, you can write the questions in the Q&A or the chat, ideally the Q&A. You can also raise your hand. Um, and if you're calling in over the phone, um, you can raise your hand by pushing star nine. Um, and that way we'll know that you, you're wanting to ask the question. We found out in a test, when we tested this out, that when you do star nine over the phone, your hand goes up, but you can never put it down again. So, um, what we what I'd like to do is try to get through the Q&A questions through the online version first because the person on the phone won't be able to see those anyway to give them an upvote or anything like that. But then if questions remain that we didn't get to and you're on the phone, then raise your hand. And after, after we get through with the online stuff, then we'll take the phone stuff. Sound good? All right. So the first question that has the most upvotes right now is any tips for working on equipment like transplanters where you can't distance workers? So Amanda, uh, if you haven't seen a transplanter um, in your migrant house visits, they're basically like, uh, it's like sitting on a, a big wide bicycle seat uh, side by side and you've got like a tray of plants in front of it and you're popping them into a, a tube and go straight into the ground. So. You, I would say it's, it's nearly shoulder to shoulder for some units and in others, it can be maybe four feet. I 
would have to think about that one. <laughs> and, and honestly, I think that's I think that's part of what this is about, right, is, is how do we think through this together? Because there are answers. There are ways of doing things more safely. Um, probably one of the recommendations would be to use masks. Um, anytime that Anytime that social distance is violated, mask is kind of a backup. So it's not ideal, but it, it would be a backup. So probably encouraging mask use would be important. And then this is going to speak a little bit to my ignorance of the transplanters. I don't know if there would there be a way of spacing people on those. I don't know. Um, on water wheel transplanters, it seems like there's some more flexibility in in where the seats project behind and you can angle them a little bit, but then mm. if you angle them too much, then they're reaching too far to put the transplants into the. Sure. Um, I did see. The other, thing, the other thing that came to my mind was the cohorting, like you mentioned, Amanda. So if people are going to be in that point. close of proximity to each other, keeping those that your transplanting crew is within a cohort and maybe don't. Yeah, that's a good point. And this was a specific example that came up when we were creating our document. And one thing we discussed was farms are really unique in that, like, you're probably quite likely to have two people who live together on your farm. Um, and so that that's a situation where you can kind of use that to your advantage in terms of how, what jobs you're assigning people. Um, the most extreme case scenario is you just put one person in and you drive it twice. That doesn't make a lot of sense time-wise, um, but there may be other options for like hand transplanting or all the things, all of these things depend on the size of your farm um, and the capacity that you have. Yeah, I, I just want to use another word here outside of cohorting that some growers may be more familiar with. Um, and that is like an isolation pod maybe that's less familiar. I don't know. But the grower I, I was shopping at earlier this week had mentioned how him and his family and extended family had created an isolation pod where basically they, um, uh, they, they are considering themselves a cohort. Basically they're trying not to do a ton of interaction outside the family unit. If they, if they can't, uh, if they can avoid it. Um, and so perhaps if you have a farm that's reliant primarily on family labor, then that, I mean, that kind of solves it right there. You're kind of are an isolation pod. And if you're transplanting with the family, living with the family, um, it's basically a cohort. Um, now to extend that concept to hired employees, it would mean like uh, giving people name tags that are blue and the, the blue group sticks together and the blue group transplants on a certain day, the green group transplants on a certain day or certain time. And if there is lots of high touch areas on the transplanter between those group switch outs, then sanitize them. Okay, so another question here. Um, not all farm or food and ag workers have health insurance. For the uninsured population, is there a website or flyer, um, both in Spanish and English, where someone can find information on where to go or who to call for healthcare input rather than just like having to go to the emergency room? Very good question. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that that's part of that preparation. There, there, here in Michigan, because our Ben and I had talked about this, because our growing season is a little bit behind uh, the southern states, we have a little bit of an advantage in that some places have already been addressing this. And so I can share some information. I've shared a couple of sites with, with Ben that have really good, and the CDC has good information in both English and Spanish, but there are some other um, extension programs that have developed 
specifically Spanish language, but there are some indigenous language um, resources that are also available. And then I think doing research before, if possible, doing that research beforehand. So federally qualified health centers are typically good resources for finding for for people who are uninsured and there are lists um, you can look those up online where where is a a nearest federally qualified health center and typically they're a good resource for uninsured um, people and then asking if there are places that are doing testing they may have they may have resources for primary care facilities and then definitely knowing if if ER care would be needed, where would be, where would be a good place to seek emergency care? Um, I found a really interesting map of all the federally qualified health centers in the United States. Great. And I can, I can share that in the, um, in the recording uh, as a shareable material along with the recording when we're done, because the Great Lakes Bay Health Centers is in it. It shows the multiple facilities that you can go to also intercare in Southwest Michigan and the one in Northwest Michigan, and there's one around Grand Rapids too. And those all were accurate. I like checked them. And if they're all very accurate for Michigan, they may as they may indeed be accurate in every state. It seems like they're really up on keeping it accurate. So I, that could be one way to find out uh, where uninsured populations can go. Can I ask a quick follow-up to Amanda? The CARES Act dictates that testing is covered, correct? For free, as long as you say testing. I believe that is correct, yes. Okay, and we've got uh, one other question that came, and uh, it's, it's a concern. It's phrased as a concern, and I guess we can talk about it. So the biggest concern uh, they have is not about on-the-job safety uh, because growers have a fair amount of control over that, but their main concern is what workers would do in their spare time um, and how that may be where they have the greatest chance of exposure. Um, any comments on that? I think it's a legitimate concern. Um, and that again comes back to education, I suppose. And what are, what are, ways, what are ways to make this easier on everyone? So understanding that this is, this is maybe a, a regular, a typical social activity. Is there something that we can replace it with? Rather than saying you can't, do this period, but whether is there another way of making things happen that would be safer? Um, and I don't know, depending on the size of the farm um, here in Michigan, a lot of times there are crew leaders. So may, maybe working with the crew leaders and, and or getting people on board and, and brainstorming together, this isn't going to be an option or this is not a good option. What would be some other things that we could do? And it does come down to an individual's um, responsibility at some point, but then we are all responsible to each other, right? We're, because we're, we're very social beings. So I, I think recognizing that social, socializing is important and it's part of what makes us human and it's part of what keeps us healthy, but how can this be done in, in a way that is safer at this point? Yeah, I want to put in just a little plug um, for Farm Commons, which is run by Rachel Armstrong. She's a lawyer who does like legal work specific to farms. And she's been, she's had a podcast um, all about COVID-19 and some of the legal implications and has really gone into this topic that like, 
you as an employer are violating someone's civil liberties by telling them what they can and can't do off the job. Um, I'm you not might, sure. that's might, all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> right. You might be. I mean, it's not a guarantee, yeah. but it's something to consider. And you have to, the, her main take home was that it's equal. You can't say, you know what, I think you're kind of a riskier employee and therefore there is no parties for you. But yeah, you're probably good. You're kind of a family guy, right, Natalie? Yeah. So I would say listen, listen to those podcasts if that's something that you are thinking about. Um, she knows a lot more than we do about it. Uh, but I think, yeah, Amanda's point is exactly right, that it's about education and it's about making sure that people know that, like, what you're doing relates to the health and safety of your whole community. And that, I think, is more effective anyways than telling people what they can and can't do. Excellent. So I would like to uh, make sure that folks on the phone have a chance to uh, submit any questions they may have. So if we didn't cover a question that you might have already had, now's the time to push star nine on your phone. And that would allow us to see that you have a question and then Mike can unmute you and you can ask it. Actually, something that came in the chat box here um, when we were talking about transplanters was that people are putting um, like plexiglass between seats I'm nice. curious to hear from Amanda, like whether that is effective and what sort of additional consideration people should have if they're doing that kind of thing. I think it's it's a it's a good step. I mean, it's it's thinking through, um, and it would probably be more comfortable <laughs> there uh, rather than. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. It's putting a physical barrier there, and that would be that would be something that. Um, could be cleaned easily so it could be wiped down easily between between users and and, and it does provide some amount of a physical barrier so that makes sense to me Don mentioned in the chat that it, people are starting to use a plastic face shield, kind of like you would see more often in a healthcare setting. So it's has to be from tight on your forehead all the way down below your chin. I don't know if you have thoughts, Amanda, too, but probably the same as you just said, that it, it is a physical barrier. It can be cleaned and sanitized, and you're less likely to putz with it because it's not hot and uncomfortable, which is a real problem with masks on a farm. You know, if you, can, if you can't breathe, you're going to be taking them down to talk, and that's not, not good to, to touch your face. Yeah. The, it's the, it doesn't provide as much protection because there's still that uh, there, there's a way for the air to escape, and there would be a way for droplets to escape, uh, but it is better than, than nothing, and, and quite possibly better than using a mask inappropriately. All right, Mike, has there been any uh, indication of phone users would like, would, that would like to speak up? Uh, no uh, raised hand activity. So okay. We are we have cleared the uh, questions in the Q&A. Uh, nothing seems to have come through the chat that has not also made it to the Q&A, and we have no hands raised currently. Okay, we've cleared the docket. And I would, I would like to thank you again, Amanda Byler and Annalisa Hultberg, for joining us on this inaugural, uh, inaugural Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network live show and future podcasts and uh, please consider joining us next week where we're talking about seed bed preparation and keeping transplants healthy okay 
Have a good one, everybody. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you.